This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand on the air. Welcome to Headscarves and Good Yarns with me, Amal Abdullahi. The show is all about talking about race, diversity, and everything in between, all in the hopes of empowering a more empathetic Aotearoa. We talk about all these huge life things through the lens of people's lives and stories. I hope every yarn you take a wee gem from it and expands your heart and mind just a wee bit more. Kia ora, alaikum. welcome to another episode of Headscarves and Good Yarns. I am super excited to be sitting down and having a chat um, about representation today. And I know that I've spoken about this specific topic before, um, but it's a lot more nuanced. And I think certain internet events have um, catalyzed, you know, me talking about it on the show. And I really want to one of my friends brought it up and we had a really good discussion about it and you know it's something that I wanted to talk about on the show today so I'm a big um, fan of the show Never Have I Ever and I think I've also expressed my love for the show uh, for the show on this podcast before as well but absolutely love Never Have I Ever Um, it released its third season just recently and it's kind of like a coming of age romantic comedy drama yeah it's giving romance it's giving comedy it's giving drama all bundled up into this the story of this teenage girl just kind of figuring out who she is and figuring out her place and um and the reason why it's a bit of a standout show as well is that it has been a really big moment for south asian representation in hollywood so the writer um, or creator of the show is Mindy Kaling and I've been in love with her since forever Um, and I think you know in her career as well she's kind of been pushing the boundaries um, you know when it comes to diversity and representation and showing up as her authentic self as a woman of color and so I think she's taken that and really ran with it for the show um you know, because you get to see um, a more nuanced story of what it means to be um, South Asian or, you know, Indian American kind of dealing with high school, which is already pretty tough. I mean, just being a teenager um, is already pretty tough and dramatic and scary and hilarious and all these other really strong emotions um but to kind of experience that journey from an indian american point of view is been amazing to watch um especially because all the movies and tv shows beforehand all you know those high school comedy drama romance coming of age that genre I don't even know if it has a name but you know that coming of age comedy drama romance genre of film and shows has always come from that um the default setting of being white um of being white often um cisgendered and um body able and Oh, now that we're actually talking about these shows, the thing that really irks me about, especially back in the day, actually, I can't even say back in the day because a couple years ago there was that movie called The Duff and it wasn't until I watched this movie, sorry, going on a bit of a tangent, but it wasn't until I watched that movie, um, what I learned 
what the term duff meant and duff stands for designated ugly friend i can't remember what the other f is but anyways yeah designated ugly friend anyways um it's kind of like that same genre and her friends are like the stereotypically hot ones and so all the guys are nice to quote-unquote the duff so they can get closer to you know the good-looking friends or whatever's deemed as good-looking um but every time the person that's like meant to be the ugly character never is um and then all it takes is like a makeover montage and they're like whoa and all the guys on the show are like whoa who's this girl um Oh, but sorry, I'm just going on a side tangent. But, you know, generally shows like that have always been from the default point of view. And I think if you're not part of the um, default automatically, it's kind of like a painfully obvious that the show really isn't made for you, meant for you. I mean, there will be some bits that will connect just because there are so many shared emotions in the human experience. Um, But generally, it just kind of passes, passes over my head. Um, And so watching Never Have I Ever, oh my God, the times that I cried and I laughed and even just the smallest things, um, yeah, definitely that representation, even though I don't identify as um, Indian or grew up in America, there were lots of things. Just being a fellow brown gal that I was like, oh, yeah, I really, really appreciate this. So because the new season recently came out, um, there has been lots of press at the moment and um, the cast have been going out there, doing their thing. Um, and there was a new white guy introduced uh, for the season. And this white guy was a brown boy. Um, and I hope I'm not giving too much of the show away, but the main character, Devi, she's expecting him to be like super lame and super nerdy and all that kind of stuff. And then surprise, surprise, he is like double stars for eyes and hearts looking at this man in adoration because he's so good looking and so the actor who plays this character his name is Anirudh Pesharodi and I I feel like I'm saying I'm pronouncing his last name um not quite right but I've only heard it in that way and so I'm not too sure how to pronounce it. but if you're listening and I've said it wrong please call me forward um and I'd love to get it right but yes so his name is Anirudh Pesharodi and he introduced himself um for for an internet interview it looked like it was over zoom I don't know why I put in that detail to you. It's not relevant at all. But anyways, he was um, introducing himself, um, doing promotion for the um, show. Um, and he pronounced his name in a very American accent. And so um, the brown community on the internet took that and sprinted with it and made all of these like memes and, and TikToks where they were saying like, other um name other indian names but with an american accent you know kind of mocking him um and 
you know, I know that we like jokes are jokes and, you know, you shouldn't take things on the internet too seriously. Um, but the commentary around that was so interesting. And, um, you know, based on that commentary, that's what my friend brought to me. And we had a really good discussion around it as well. But it was so interesting reading the commentary behind it. And there were all these viewpoints that are being brought to the table. Um, and I think this is a very specific situation but it kind of begs further questions I think about representation because I feel like we are entering a new era when it comes to representation and I think it's really important to unpack some things around you know representation um, especially if we want it to be done well um, and even that uh, we'll kind of unpack well what does representation that is well done look like um, but anyways just going back to the commentary around these memes um, kind of taking the mickey out of this this guy Anirudz and how he pr pronounced his own name um, you know there was one end of the spectrum where people were like I'm so um, and like very strong emotive language was being used as well um, which I think is an interesting side note because I I had time I was scrolling through all of the comments just to get a good idea of what people were talking about and I know that it's just a conversation on the internet but I feel like because the internet is so unfiltered and unregulated, people just fully show up um, and probably very different to how they would show up. And, you know, if you're having an in-person corridor. But, yeah, the, all of the language was really strong and emotive, which I think is just, I mean, it's not bad to have emotions. And I think we should embrace our emotions more. I feel like we do live in a very desensitized um world and we've normalized not being emotive but it's really interesting when topics like this they kind of it's okay to have emotions I think but it it's there to invite like really a, a deeper conversation and I think when your emotions are so strong to the point where you're clouded by them it's really hard to have that conversation and so it, you know going through the comments it was really interesting there wasn't actually that much back and forth conversation it was more just all of these strong emotive statements and um I think that's why it's so important that yes we can put our opinions out there on the internet um, but to always follow that through with in-person conversation because I think we need to connect with people more and um, you know have a grip in what you believe in but loosen that grip right because I think when we are on the internet um, it's easy to forget that there's someone on the other side and you know, we're not going to change each other's viewpoint or effectively really communicate our viewpoint if it's coming in headstrong with emotions because I think that just leads to being defensive or people holding onto their ideas even more because um, emotions are so strong. 
Um, but anyways, it was so interesting that all of the um, statements or the comments that people were having were, were so strong. So sorry, that's why I just want to explain that because what I'm going to say next, you, you'll see those emotions. So there were, you know, one end of the spectrum where people were like, I'm so disappointed. I am so ashamed that this is a representation that we have um, had to stand for and you know lots of comments around well our culture is our culture is so beautiful and it's been watered down to this you know filth this whitewashed filth um, so very strong um, language again and I think those viewpoints are valid I do understand um, because there is that question of well is imperfect representation better than uh, no representation not too sure and then on the other end of the spectrum or yeah we'll kind of still stick into that spectrum lots of comments of you know we have strayed so far um, lots of comments around this person is not Indian enough um, we should have got someone else who is um, more Indian to represent our stories um, and then, then there was the other end of the spectrum where people were like well you know you should back off um, this person who knows a like, code switching could be a protective mechanism there's actually a lot of trauma associated with saying your name um, properly due to the bullying um, living in white centric places and you know, that is very, very valid. Uh, I think, I mean, I got bullied for other things, but I think Amala's a name that, well, fortunately can't be turned into something that can be used against me. But um, that's happened to, like, people in my family, um, my friends, you know, have had their name kind of beautiful, beautiful names with significant meaning and significant history. Um completely being um, you know said in a way that's that's made for it to feel something that is not worthy or silly it's like oh I don't want to be called that because I'm just going to be um, bullied for it um, so I'd rather just go by you know maybe a white name or I'll just say my name like this and to be honest even for myself like the way that you actually say Amal properly um, is ML that's how my parents say it ML um, but I think just living in New Zealand I go by um, Amal that's how I introduce myself um, and it's so strange in my head I'm like yeah I'm Amal except for when I'm with these people or in these places then I'm ML um, and and you know, I it's something that I think for myself I should probably unpack later. But you know, so we had this whole spectrum of thoughts and kind of everything in between. Um, and yeah, when my friend and I were talking about it, when I was sitting down and thinking about it, I really sat with this idea of representation and you know. And I think one point that I want to make about this specific situation is that um, growing up as a third 
culture kid I think we have definitely formed our own different culture I think and I know that that will be a very controversial thing to say and hearing that not everyone is going to be pleased about that and I think um it's hard it's hard it's something that I think in migrant communities we don't talk about too much or like we don't talk about the legit or genuine stance of this this third culture um this third kid culture that is forming and I think it will kind of as we get older and as future generations come it will just get bigger and bigger I think and and I think a lot of people are like well that shouldn't even be a thing because you're just either whitewashed or you are OG you are genuine you are legitimate um like I think a lot of smiley people would look at you know me and my siblings and say well these kids are really they live a like white lifestyle or they're really white um yeah they live a white yeah white lifestyle they're really white um and wouldn't really consider us truly Somali Somali and in my head even though I don't speak the language as well um I think I am very Somali in the fundamental like values and the processes and the way that we look at this world um but I think I've also you know I've I've grown up here in Aotearoa and I call it home and that has also influenced how I view the world and has also influenced my values and I might not be considered 100% Somali for that reason but also at the same time you know it's not 100% Kiwi as well I think it's kind of this beautiful in-between third culture um but I don't think it's seen as a genuine third culture. And I think I want to make the point here, you know, just kind of challenging people to think about, you know, the relationship or the difference between the word culture and the word tradition. Because I think, you know, when people think about third culture kids like us, there is this worry or concern that we won't follow the tradition, um, or know yeah know what the traditional values and practices and um language and all of that kind of stuff is like and i do get that but actually tradition is very different to culture and culture is actually always forever evolving and and changing and if you look now i can only really speak for the limited somali history that i know but you know, even back home in the homeland, that Somali culture, whatever that means, has changed and evolved over time and has evolved in different parts of Somalia, you know, to the point where someone from the south um, may not necessarily understand someone from the north and vice versa, not only in terms of language, but in terms of values, in terms of practices. And, you know, I've definitely even heard my parents say things like, oh, well, that's not part of my culture. That's that part of Somalia. 
And so sometimes I think we forget that culture is forever changing. And I think when we think about migration, there is this huge idea of preservation. There's a lot of shame around that when someone isn't, you know, when children don't turn out exactly 100% as they did um as they would have if they grew um, grew up back home. And I think there's space to be very proud of who you are and where you come from. Um, but I think in general, when we think about, um, well, I'm, I'm just going to say Somali because I'm from Somali, but when we think about the Somali culture, the Somali experience, um, the place of Somali kids who have grown up somewhere else, you know, Somali Kiwi, Somali um, UK, Somali American, those experiences and those subcultures that are kind of starting to bubble up haven't been legitimized. And then we have, you know, and then it kind of comes to head or that tension comes to head um, in this specific case of um, Anirud, you could see that same tension, I think, um, which is really, really interesting. Um, and then when we just think back to the show Never Have I Ever, what kind of representation did that show promise us? Because in my head, it was the Indian American experience, which I think you know, there would be criticisms of that and saying, well, that's actually not genuine representation because, you know, this girl does, the main character does this, this, this. She clearly doesn't know enough about her own culture, um, which I think is really interesting. Um, and then it also begs the question, well, what should we expect from representation um, but I kind of want to move away from talking about the the many memes that were made from Anirudh's moment and just kind of speak to uh, in a in a wider sense but first of all what actually is representation um, what does that mean um, what um, significance does it have what power does it have um, and so when I just searched representation um, what Wikipedia told me I think it's a really good way um, of wording it is that it is through representation that people organize the world and reality through the act of naming its elements um, and not only does that kind of help define what representation is, um, but also kind of outlines the impact that representation has. And I think compared to times where media was used as a like very obvious and outward propaganda propaganda tool sorry like if we're thinking back to nazi times and um the propaganda that was used around Ju the jewish community um you know that was obvious outward propaganda and i think now especially with the internet and all the different forms of media that we consume on a daily basis um um, and it's not as obvious and outward, but I think subtly it does um, help people organize the world and their reality, which I think is 
so interesting and, and so powerful and um you know the way that psychology has kind of the term that it's used to coin this is um in framing research um so framing is this idea that media plays a really strong role in defining and shaping the topics of public debate public thought um you know it kind of sets the tone of you know as a society this is what we think this is um how we feel about this this is how these people should be interpreted um and you know i've yes it is acknowledged um in the research world that it is harder to um actually research or follow the impact of that but I think this idea of framing is is really really key um and also really uh problematic I think when you think about that power and the the lack of diversity that has traditionally and I, I think maybe even now seen in media you know and it always goes back to that point of you know who's telling the story how is that story being framed and who's listening to that story um it kind of all feeds it kind of all feeds into that and so um i just want to go through representation in hollywood but um specifically black representation in hollywood to kind of go through the history um and to see how that representation how that framing has been set up um so if we go if we're looking at the past 100 years of black representation in hollywood films um I think we can kind of trace it back to the when the birth of nation birth of a nation sorry was released um back in 1915 and it kind of marked the beginning of a history of really damaging and racist representations of black people in film um so back then um or even now actually it's kind of heralded as this wow the cinematic masterpiece um you know it was for back then it was considered technologically advanced and sophisticated um but at the time black groups were or among the black community sorry um there was a lot of open criticism and um you know there were riots and protests you know to ban the film because of its um damaging representations of um of of black people um and and the interesting thing to note that um you know even then i because i just said that the black community got together and they rallied um so it's not like there wasn't uh, a sense of knowledge that you know perhaps this representation was very racist very ignorant um but that representation wasn't seen as problematic back then but i think um well, yeah it wasn't seen as problematic because of the fact that that resistance was forgotten about um disappeared um erased over time and because that resistance was just kind of swept to the side um representations like that just wasn't seen as problematic because i think um you can't say that it, there were 
people that weren't as that were more or less ignorant or progressive it's just that that resistance was really shut down um and so you know um representations of black people you know black people were given roles of being maids and butlers and um slaves and having really um like you know that violent regressive racist message or toning was added to it um and so then we move into the harlem resistance and um this was kind of in the 1920s and there was a revival of black arts and culture uh, that was known as the harlem resistance and um, civil rights groups like the national association for the advancement of colored people and national urban league they were um you know they were gaining people they were gaining um, momentum and and then we had uh, directors like Oscar um forgive me because I am going to say this last name wrong I just know it there's a, it ends with an x and my brain cannot process that but Mathieu I'm not too, too sure if the X is silent, but um, there were amazing directors like Oscar that really advanced black cinema. And in his career, um, Oscar made 45 um, movies that um, added color and nuance and really celebrated black people, you know, um, stories that had black teachers and ministers and lawyers. Um, and he had some excellent, excellent um excellent films um which is which was really revolutionary especially during the 1920s now we're entering the 1930s and unfortunately entering an era where it was the age of you know black people really being reduced to that slave servant role um and you know, this is when they were thinking about making the mo- or the book Gone with the Wind into a into a movie, and in AACP they put pressure on MGM to not make it because you know there was real concerns and fear around you know this Gone with the Wind film adaptation would just be a repeat of the birth of a nation, um, but you know there were reassurances that they would make a um, better version um, uh, but then the character uh, but then you know the stereotype that was very prominent in that decade which was you know black people being servants, slaves, maids that we had a black actress playing that exact role um, and you know playing up to the exact um, stereotype as well and kind of used as a prop in the movie um, and then once the second or when the second world war began um, Hollywood produced all of these films um, to you know make uh, to make it appealing for black people to get behind the war um, and you know, there was one particular movie that came out in 1945, um, and I feel 
and in, in, in the movie was called The Negro Soldier and it was meant to like um, raise morale against black soldiers um, and then it kind of you know the NAACP again kind of started a campaign calling out the film saying that that film was propaganda um, because this this movie kind of fueled this idea amongst the black community that fighting Hitler um, on behalf of America would help speed up the fight for their own rights um, which sounds so well to me personally I think oh my goodness that sounds well, what is the connection between those two? I don't think there really is, but, you know, movies like this really propelled that idea. And again, please note that there was that resistance um, from the NAACP, but again, because that resistance was kind of pushed aside, um, you know, these movies were made with full steam and were kind of legitimizing this poor representation Um and this poor representation continued post-World War II. Um, and, you know, we're kind of entering movies where it was really for white viewers, um, but there was a lot of um, poor stereotypes or poor representations of black people and, um, you know, people doing blackface, like white actors doing blackface, which is horrible. Um, so now we're entering the 60s and the fight for black civil rights was just, you know, boiling, boiling at this point. Um, and, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, protests and uprising was, you know, on the tip of people's tongues. Um, but, you know, the representation of this change wasn't seen on screens. Um, and, and I think it's because back then, you know, the movies were a place where it wasn't to be politicized in the matter that, you know, as soon as race was kind of acknowledged, then... Um, it would kind of contradict that idea that the movies were trying to tell everyone that everything was going to be okay. And so race needed to be palatable and it was only palatable if it followed, you know, the status quo, if it followed the stereotypes, um, if it followed the way that black people had always been represented um, up until this point, um, which is insane though one movie to note during this era was the 1967 film guess who's coming to dinner and it tells the story of a young white woman who brings her black fiance home to meet her parents and that was um a very liberal film at that time um and that was a really really important um Oh, that was really helpful to the civil rights movement because, um, you know, it kind of told that story of, well, if you're not threatening to us, then you can be a part of society, um, which I think was really, really interesting. And then we're kind of moving to the 1970s and then the black exploitation genre um, kind of started 
started during this decade and in this genre was is all was all about showing powerful images of black people who are unapologetically angry um sometimes violent um and sometimes even you know following the goal of to quote unquote to kill a whitey um so so many movies were made um during that time and it was very aggressive in every sense you know there was nudity violence drug use sexuality um specifically um directed at a younger black audience um and and so this era is really worthy to note because up until that point there was all these character um caricatures of maids and slaves and butlers and this genre basically said nah if that and and completely turned that on its head um and so you know they were kind of like weirdly in a way like superheroes because they had like mad fighting skills and um you know fighting against white people um so it was a really big deal revolutionary for black audiences um to see at that time um so yes considered quite um yeah quite violent um and then in the 1980s that um black exploitation um era kind of stopped um and the rebellion movement um was kind of waning um and then we kind of we're entering the era of blockbuster um and this blockbuster era can really be framed by the movie um, Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing, which was was looking into racial injustice and um, a film reviewer who was, you know, at the time they they said that they recall being the only black person. And they said, you know, I remember afterwards there were some people who thought the film was going to cause riots because they saw a black character played by Spike Lee in the film commit an act of damage and as a result of the fury he was feeling in response to um, you know the injustices um, to the situation in his community and the lack of respect for the black community and so we're kind of entering this um, this new era but also you know a lot of films during that time you know had a lot of white savior complex where you know white characters rescue people of color um and films like the help green book mississippi burning um and i think that white savior complex still exists um to this day um and it might not be as obvious as those films were but i think that white savior complex still exists to this day and so now i think for the past couple of years we've kind of entered this hashtag oscars so white era and so back in 2015 when the academy award nominations were announced um it really it was a catalyst for a a really big conversation around um you know pub it really yeah started a huge public identity crisis and started a huge conversation around the lack of diversity in hollywood 
in, in general during the time and so this hashtag was started on social media called Oscars So White um, and, and you know back then 92% of film directors were men and 86 featured 86% of films featured white um, actors and so you know there was this huge narrative that you know black films were unbankable or films that are non-white directed um, films that are unbankable um, you know have no commercial value and oh goodness and you know this bias has all these racial biases have been building since the day dot um, but I think there's still a lot of biases um, and barriers for communities um, outside of the majority Um, and you know it kind of reminds me of this quote from Malcolm X where he's talking about sticking a knife into someone's back eight inches and pulling it out five inches and the question that that asks is is that progress um, and recently you know the results from um, Hollywood's diversity report have been released and um, you know 42 so so the numbers I'll just quickly um, quote some numbers um, women represent 47% of film leads and 42% of actors um, and women and people of color have made progress in key roles like being directors and film writers, but are still actually quite underrepresented. Under yeah, underrepresented. Yep. You know when you just like gaslight yourself and you like to say that word correctly. Um, so you know, women make up less than twenty two percent of directors and thirty three percent of film writers and both female and male people of color combined represent 30% of directors and 32% of film directors, which is, you know, something that really needs to be changed. But another stat, which I think is quite interesting um, from the consumer's point of view, from the consumer end, um, is that 42%, 42.7% compromised of um, ticket buyers for most of the of last year's highest grossing films. So here we have on one end, there's still that um, underrepresentation for um, communities that 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 are part of that aren't part of the majority and really key roles. But if you go from the consumer end, actually 42.7% of consumers um, compromise the majority of ticket buyers, which I think is so interesting. Um, You know, if you really think about it, it's, you know, these ticket buyers are keeping studios afloat, especially in the time of a pandemic um, where, you know, life is harder business is harder um and you know consumers are keeping the studios afloat um and that i feel like that's a form of investment basically and you know as investors there should be that sense of return and i think in the form of representation but of course i want to acknowledge that this representation is happening at different 
um, different speeds for different communities and you know it's still not enough um, like for example I found this really interesting um, paper where it was a film analysis looking at the representation of people with disabilities specifically in, in M. Night Shyamalan films sorry if I said that last name wrong um, and this this analysis was done in 2019 so you know pretty relevant um, and you know this analysis came to the conclusion that over half of Shyamalan's films had characters with disabilities portrayed as dangerous to others or society and there was also a significant number half of his films 50% that's pretty significant um, that had an anti-inclusion theme and these themes can be observed in other films and throughout the horror genre um, and I think you know that kind of invites further conversation around representation of people with um, disability in film so you know I'm it's definitely needs more work um, and it's happening at different paces, unfortunately, for our different communities, which I think is not on. Because I think when we're talking about representation, we should also really push for our sense of intersectionality um, and advance stories of of all identities. Um, because I think we cannot truly say that we are uh, we celebrate everyone and that we are inclusive. Um, if there are certain communities that are excluded from that. I think that would be very wrong um, of us to say that. Um, and I think when we're talking about representation specifically in films, there's this interesting element of, you know, there's this commercial value to it. And, you know, it's not that it gets more ingenuine um, than just pure storytelling, but, um, you know, in this world unfortunately money talks money talks a lot um and if it ain't talking that much then um people aren't really going to get behind it as much and um when i was talking just going specifically back to the um anirud's um meme conversation um when i was talking about it with my friend um i think she made a very very valid point where it's like well actually you know this never have I ever or just representation in general like you know these people are making money from it um these people um not only are they making money from it there's a platform therefore there's responsibility and there's and there's power with that when you do have a platform um and I agree when people do have a platform there is that sense of privilege and um you know when you definitely know the damages of when people don't do right by their platform and the responsibilities that they have um but but then that asks the question, well, what should we expect from representation? Um, and, you know, I think earlier I was kind of singing my praises on Miss Marvel um, and how as a Muslim woman I really appreciated the the representation of Islam um, and I've been talking about it with friends and family and you know some people were like actually I didn't expect that I didn't ask for that I didn't want that um, we don't need you know there were comments that I felt forced and like I don't need um, a Muslim Marvel character like I, I watch Marvel because 
it's about the superheroes. I don't know. Like uh, it just felt like we didn't ask for that represent representation. Um, and I think as a collective, well, what do we expect from representation? Because honestly, you know, there is no way to 100% represent a community. Um, you know, and I think we should elevate our representation so much that there is there isn't pressure for you know that representation to carry everything because there is no way that one person one story one film one show can 100 percent um 100 represent a community um represent a story because we're all so different from each other um we all value different things we think about the world in a different way and i think you know to shoulder that is actually i think a lot to ask um and i think going back to the anirud's specific situation well they're still value in never have i ever and i think how he pronounces his name doesn't take away from what that show has meant for a lot of people um including myself um and you know i i get that people like well i understand that people like well you know he should be able to say his name it's especially because we are living in a white centric world and it comes across as if um he is pleasing white people um which i think is a really which i do understand that um you know as a person of color i have i i probably subconsciously un yeah I don't feel like I am aware of when I do it directly. Um, but I think deep down in my subconscious probably do code switch as well. And, and if that is the case, then I urge all third culture kids to examine your code switching where it comes from, because we shouldn't be shamed into fitting into a white centric world, into a white centric um, narrative. I think that itself is very wrong. But, you know, if upon further deeper investigation of yourself and who you are, and that is how you feel comfortable saying your name, my dude, go for it. That will be represent. That will represent. Um, you know, that will sing true for some people, and I feel like we shouldn't take away from that. Um, but I think when we're talking about um, representation and kind of reviewing it, because to be honest, we are entering this new phase of representation because um, we're pushing for nuance, we're pushing for um, intersectionality, we're pushing um, and very vocal about it and also we're voting with our money as well and what movies we we support um, but I think it's important before we really dive deep into it um, you know how is it done who is it done by and who is it putting the pressure on because if you think about it when it comes to the majority when it comes to white people there's never um conversations around well this is an ingenuine representation well it's because if you have that privilege you also have that privilege of 
you know, your story being understood as a piece of a whole collective as opposed to this is the whole collective. Um, and I think, you know, people from who don't have that privilege do not have that do not have that ability to have stories just representing a shard. Um, but I think it also is kind of intention with that idea of, I am aware that, you know, these stories are being told in a white centric world, being heard and um, processed and consumed in a white centric world as well. And how do we tell those stories that are genuine to us and not palatable I think that's where the tension really lies and we should be sitting within that um, when we think about representation because it's not perfect right now um, and and personally my my two senses that imperfect representation is better than no representation um, but that shouldn't be our only option as well like well it's better than no representation so I'm just going to settle for this imperfect representation nah uh uh um, we need to keep doing it better that imperfect representation we need to keep doing it better so kind of sitting in that tension between um, you know making sure that it's representative to who is telling that story and making sure that it's not palatable but also accepting that nuance and putting less pressure on that representation because there's just no way that we can get it right with our ever-changing cultures our ever-changing development as humans um, and just the inherent differences that lie we are not a homogenous um, group of people um yeah we're not a homogenous group of people and so I think we should really examine um the pressure that is put because we're not homogenous and also specifically when it comes to representation within our migrant um ethnic refugee communities I think we should examine ourselves as well because it was really interesting reading the commentary around um Anirud's pronunciation there was a lot of um there was a lot of anger and shame and I think we should examine where those emotions are coming from what is actually what is the conversation that lies underneath that because it was coming from a certain place and I think as a community we should examine that um yeah lots of thoughts on this representation but thank you for tuning in into another episode of Headscarfs and Good Yarns to keep spinning the yarns let us know your thoughts you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Headscarfs and Good Yarns or email us at headscarfsandgoodyarn at gmail.com This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air